Hello, and welcome to Inside the Sound of Fear. An absence of social interaction will result in declines with cognitive function, including memory deficit or amnesia, confusion or disorientation. Recent memories are most likely to be lost, while more remote or deeply ingrained memories may be spared. False memories, or confabulation, are either completely invented or made up of genuine memories misplaced in time. Now, please enjoy Kingdom by the Sea. Kingdom by the Sea. I sat alone at a two-person table, right shoulder pressed against the cool plate glass. The Third Avenue procession of long faces went by, rained upon Colt's shoulders, glittered by the LED glow of the street lamps. The storm was finally letting up. I raised the espresso cup to my face and breathed in the aroma, rich with hints of chocolate and cinnamon. I touched my lips to the delicate texture of the foam, tilted the cup, and let the strength of the coffee warm my throat, hot and delicious. My vision shifted to the similar-looking crowd across the street. A bus, the double-length kind that bend in the middle, stopped to pick up some riders, then slowly merged back into traffic. People with jackets, hoodies, coats. I couldn't help thinking one of them must have some clue or notion about who I was. It had been a year since I regained consciousness. The doctors informed me I'd been in the big boating accident, the harbor cruise that went down in Elliott Bay with 173 passengers aboard during last year's abnormally frigid spring. Apparently, I had paid cash to board the ship, so there was no electronic paper trail that led to my identity. I remembered several days of varying lucidity at the hospital when the city had made its best effort to discover who I was. After the investigation into my ticket purchase had come up empty, I waited word from the detectives who swarmed the site of the accident. Neither divers, mechanical dredging, nor the salvage work that followed had been able to recover my lost ID. None of the other survivors knew anything about me either, including my name. The replacement name I had come up with Lloyd Donovan, was something I thought sounded good. After that first step came the real work of rebuilding my life into something of meaning, a mysterious, frustrating goal, like reaching out into a dark room and failing to find the edges. To conquer this insurmountable task, I had broken it down into smaller, more manageable mini-tasks that I completed one by one. The first few had been necessary to rebuild my function in society again, gaining a new social security number, earning a driver's license, getting a job. This was only one section of the puzzle, though. Regaining knowledge of the past was an endless quest with no milestones, and no one bothered me for a quick or definitive resolution. There had only been the enigmatic threat of which my long-suffering cognitive therapist reminded me. The longer I took to figure things out, the less likely my memories would return. The urgency was all mine. The rest of the world was content to 
let me take whatever time required to find my way. So months had gone by, and I floated in outer space. In time, I discovered one or two clues in the form of behavior patterns. For me, I was fairly certain that I was an introvert by nature, possibly a hermit, since no one came forth to claim me. My best guess was that at the time of the accident, I had been visiting Seattle, not living here. In the months that followed, I had investigated the neighborhoods. Nowhere triggered a recollection. The local news had made a concerted effort to help by broadcasting the image of my face. Alas, the reconstructive surgery, though masterful, had transfigured my face into a mask different enough from my true face that it thwarted any attempt by a human or computer to connect me to the past. Another clue was that I had been injured doing a typically touristy activity. I wouldn't feel like I'd been wasting my time relearning the details of this charming city, this kingdom by the sea, that had become my adoptive home. In the seasons that followed, I had frequented public gatherings like this one, concerts, sporting events, car shows, book fairs, whatever, loitering about, hoping someone would recognize me. Nothing. My pursuit of a personal connection to my previous life had led me to discovering something else, though. Of all the gatherings, the classical concerts at Benaroya Hall were my favorite. I could still feel the vibrations of tonight's performance, Mozart's Requiem, in my bones. Those majestic, somber chords had spoken to me. And not only because the players were world-class, this was the soundtrack to my state of being tonight. I took another sip of espresso and welcomed the familiar caffeine rush. I pondered how odd it was that I should feel elation after such a heavy orchestral performance. Perhaps it was simply an appreciation for the musical composition itself, or, at the very least, what it meant to me. Benaroya was situated in the center of the downtown slope, bordered by the immense glass pyramid of the library and the imposing corporate buildings of the central business district on one side, and the colorful one-story clubs and restaurants of Belltown on the other. I was only a few blocks from the haphazard bustle of Pike Place. Beyond that was the glow of the upscale restaurants and galleries facing the water on Alaskan Way. And beyond that were the long piers jutting out to the endless blue of Elliott Bay. Perhaps my wave of good feelings stemmed from dodging a certain inconvenience. I had fled the seat I purposefully selected at the back of the auditorium while the symphony players were still receiving applause. The players couldn't have possibly noticed my absence, yet something within that act had been secretly wicked and liberating to me. I was getting away with a crime by cheating the musicians out of something they had deserved. Another thing I knew about myself was that I was sensitive to crowds, especially when they created noise in unison. That many people making a clamor together made me consider them one oversized, overpowering, living organism that I feared. 
When those last beautiful notes of the Requiem had faded away and the applause erupted, I had to steel myself to walk out with composure rather than throw open the exit doors and bolt out. Now that I was some distance away, safely enjoying my coffee, I realized those fears had been silly, childish. Still, the fact remained that even a cultured group like this was one step away from transforming into a mob. Like the ill-fated harbor crews, I had come to this performance alone and planned to leave alone. I was fairly certain this wouldn't always be the case. I had no wish to be forever without family and friendless, though I did not find comfort in groups. On the other hand, being alone with a few strangers around me was strangely comforting, more so than sitting in my dingy apartment sequestered from everyone. I was in no hurry to get home, so I studied the people and waited out the rain. Benaroya's inner lobby was a long rectangle dotted by a coat check, elevators that led down to the parking garage, a symphony shop, a cafe, and an espresso bar, where I currently sat. A second set of doors led to the auditorium lobby, and a third led to the mustard-colored velvet seats and the vast space of the auditorium itself. It had been a few minutes, long enough for the applause to die down and revert to silence. Now, from the auditorium lobby came another expected susurrus. I turned in my seat and glanced over to confirm the source. Some of the audience were pushing their way into the inner lobby. They filed by my table and gathered at the exit doors to third or the elevators. A few stopped at the coat check and re-cloaked themselves in dark garb, a contrast to the bright smiles on their faces. This crowd of music appreciators, shoulder to shoulder, young and old, fat and thin, broke up into little groups that walked by and reformed at the espresso bar in the cafe. I detected floral hints of perfume and the citrus of cologne in their wake, a well-washed, fragrant group. I was intrigued by them. Two men stopped at the espresso bar and broke into song, badly attempting to recreate the themes from the piece. I thought for a moment about the first half of the performance. Mozart brazenly put the four most powerful themes practically back-to-back -back rather than spacing them out. Unheard of. Then again, perhaps this was one of the reasons his Requiem has become so legendary. A boy underdressed in black jeans and a navy blue hoodie over a white t-shirt, walked by the singing men, waited until they were finished, then tried his hand at recreating the themes with his voice. He captured the phrasing and key of the notes perfectly. At least, that's what it sounded like to me. I put my hand to my bearded chin and stroked the hairs. Was there a clue to my past buried somewhere in the mathematics of those notes? Why could I tell the boy sang the melody so accurately, and the others could not? Prior to the accident, I could have been a musician, or a music teacher. More of the crowd passed me by. The old outnumbered the young. An octogenarian couple walked by slowly, arm in arm. They had the look of proud, quiet accomplishment to them. At the coat check, 
They traded in their tickets for luxurious long coats, suitable for the cold winters of the Pacific Northwest. He helped her on with her garment, a smooth, practiced gesture. It was heartwarming to see a couple who had likely lived their whole lives together still in love. I suppose there wasn't much interest with the millennial generation in classical music. Asking 20-somethings to sit still for 60 minutes with phones silent, tucked away in the darkness of their pockets and purses, was increasingly tantamount to cruel and unusual punishment. The elderly had their issues too, though. Sitting through the performance without coughing, sneezing, or blowing one's nose was a hard-fought and won social accomplishment for many. There was no reason for me to take sides with young or old, since I was neither. If I was being perfectly honest, I was closer to being looped into the latter group than the former, being of good health and of early middle age. I had no reason to be so critical of the younger generation except that the casual clothes were an insult, though likely an unconscious one, to the performers. If young concertgoers cared enough to buy tickets and attend, why not carve out a few more minutes and put on a dress jacket over their t-shirts at least? It was mystifying. I pondered that maybe it was because they didn't want to call attention to themselves. For a group stereotypically glib and multi-conversational on social media, I noticed many young people were uncomfortable with face-to-face -face conversation. Here was the truth that eluded them. If they had dressed like the members of the audience who were older, perhaps that would have better achieved the desired effect of invisibility. I should be grateful that the underdressed young ones who were here perceived value in music at all. In my ongoing attempt to discover memory triggers, I had listened to hours of popular music. In recent years, hip-hop, pop, and rock seemed to have melded together into a bubblegum melange that held no interest for me. The producers of new popular music were all rich bastards who sounded like they graduated from the same music school. Of all the bands and solo acts I've listened to lately, only one, Fear Boys with Bugs, dodged convention and offered a different sound. The last great popular music decade, or at least the last one with true artistic diversity, had been the 1980s, where a lack of the internet kept musicians from having any idea what their rivals had been cooking up in secret for their next album. Now came a cluster of young men and women in formal wear, openly defying the casualness of their generation. Perhaps they were aspiring classical musicians. In any city that had a symphony, there were a few inspired young people who underwent years of training, discipline, and learning, then traveled overseas to hone their skills and racked up experience playing with other orchestras of the world, places with a stronger culture of classical music, like Europe or Asia. When those people achieved world-class status, they returned home and took a seat with the symphony of their place of origin. I only picked up a few words here and there whilst this latest group breezed by. They were discussing tonight's players in a catty way, casting out criticisms and the occasional compliment to show off to their peers how much they knew about classical technique. One young couple remained quiet while the others chatted. He was Korean, with a handsome face, clean-shaven, dressed in a dark gray suit. She was white, 
long-legged, and was wearing a short black dress with spaghetti straps. When she turned, I noticed she had stylized angel wings adorning the open back of her dress. Then came a group of young ones who walked silently by, smartphones out, rushing headlong to the exit. I imagine they were tweeting that they were about to meet their friends at Starbucks or wherever. Ignorant souls, not knowing what an enriching experience they had just attended, relying on others to tell them how they should focus their attention instead of making up their minds for themselves. Two thirty-something women walked by, dressed in expensive-looking clothes. A blonde in a red dress, and a brunette in a black dress. Perhaps this was a girl's night out. Both women were rather attractive. The brunette made eye contact with me and flashed a quick grin. I thought of standing and introducing myself. She was rather wrapped in conversation she was having with her other friend, though, not someone looking for social rescue. She was probably in the habit of multitasking her attention or looking for a quick glance of platonic validation. Nothing further. One of the things in which I prided myself was discretion. I'd never intentionally impose myself on a social situation unless I thought that's what the others wanted. To do otherwise would be rude. I didn't want to spoil this woman's memory of the symphony by capping it off with a ham-handed attempt at gaining her number. No matter how attractive she was, or how attractive she thought I was, Seattle was one of the top five cities in the country with regard to population growth. An attractive woman not wearing a wedding ring was probably approached every day or two for a date. Then again, perhaps she was so attractive that men considered her unapproachable and therefore was rarely asked out. Perhaps I also found her beauty intimidating, and I was finding an excuse not to spoil my own evening by topping it off with a rejection. With regard to her elegant-looking blonde friend, my suspicions were doubly so. The two women collected their coats and joined a small crowd by the elevator doors. The rain had stopped. I looked up from my seat and focused my vision beyond the overhang of the building, beyond the power lines and the glow of the streetlights. Up there was a clearing in the sky, a stripe of dark with a dusting of stars. The hall doors opened again, and out came a handful of musicians, a few men and women carrying black instrument cases. The women wore evening dresses and high heels. I recognized the tall, slender flute player with lustrous red hair that she had let go gray at the temples. The men were buttoned up in their tailored tuxedos and stuck close together like a murder of crows. I recognized the horn player with the salt-and-pepper ZZ-top beard, and the portly clarinet player with the goatee, and the first-chair violin, a virtuoso who played the Stradivarius with the measured precision of a surgeon wielding a scalpel. The tall violinist's hair was bone-white, and he was square-jawed and clean-shaven. His tuxedo fit perfectly, concealing a wiry, athletic build despite his apparent late middle age. His hands were large, and the knuckles I could see gripping the violin case were exceedingly large, grotesque, even from this distance, no doubt the result of arduous daily practice. 
he split off from the others and exited the main doors onto third in the company of the red-haired flutist. They regarded each other cordially, parted ways, and walked off in opposite directions. The woman toward the heart of downtown, and the man toward Pike Place Market. Something at that moment possessed me, an inspiration of energy. To follow the man. I wanted some sort of human connection tonight, even if it was only telling a great musician that I had enjoyed his performance. He looked familiar. Perhaps I had known him prior to my accident. He could tell me who I was. The fellow was long-legged and difficult to follow. The air was frigid with little traffic, foot or otherwise, this late at night to impede him. He made his way northwest along 3rd, crossing against red lights. This was the custom among pedestrians in the city. He made a left on Pike Avenue and walked briskly downhill to the market. All at once, the cold light and wind blowing in off the sea fell, and the calm offered no resistance while I closed in on my target, who was now a few steps away. Crowds of noisy people were clustered around the four corners of the intersection across the street from the market entrance. Raised voices from the young men and women trumpeted a win at a football game earlier that day. Convinced the violinist wouldn't have discerned the sound of my voice in that uproar, I reached out my hand too quickly to tap him on the shoulder and experienced a twinge of pain my elbow. He strolled on, out of reach, while I forced my way through the knot of football fans. Once across Pike, he walked under the red neon glow of the market sign and the clock that read 10.45, past the crowd and the ice-packed displays of the fishmongers who fling fresh three-foot salmon to each other rather than passing them by hand. I darted past the flying fish and pursued him inside. It was easy to keep an eye on my target's white hair and the black collar of his tuxedo looming slightly above the crowd. I followed him into the long, covered arcades with emplaced wooden tables on one side and makeshift storefronts that populated the innards of the market. The architectural bones of this place dated back more than a hundred years. The violinist made his way past the Olympian bar and grill, then several tables manned by local craftspeople and merchant displaying their wares. He stopped at a flower cellar for a moment, turned. I thought he had detected me, so I waved. He stooped, with eyes closed, to inhale the fragrance of one of the bouquets, and strode on. A folk singer with a worn guitar and blue jeans strummed a beautiful Spanish-sounding melody, and I went past, though I would like to have stopped and listened. The white-haired man descended a wooden staircase, to the labyrinth of older arcades below. He strolled past the less popular shops, spaces crammed with New Age books and charms, comics and videos, a head shop. He walked past all this without a hint of interest, then went down another set of stairs and pushed through the double doors that led into the parking area. There were fewer people here, so I called out to him, Sir! Sir! while I struggled to catch up. He didn't hear. On one side of the corridor that led to the parking garage were some long-haired teenagers smoking a joint. One clutched a skateboard to his skinny body, the underside done up with colorful graffiti. They were holding a murmured conversation that abruptly ceased when the violinist walked past. I was now at the end of one section of the hallway with the violinist at the other. 
The noise of the crowd was gone, so I called out again. Excuse me, sir! I received only the attention of the teens. The violinist walked on in silence, shouldering his way through the double doors at the far end and strode out into the parking garage. The man was ignoring me, which, even if he was not in the mood for conversation, I found difficult to fathom. I ran to catch up, bursting through the double doors onto the black asphalt of the garage. It smelled less of moldy old wood here and more of grime, tire rubber, and engine oil. I spotted the white hair again when he turned the glowing corner of the pay station heading toward some parked cars. I could smell the salt water of the bay from here. We were only a couple of hundred feet from the shore. I thought amusingly of how I had followed this man to his car like a crazed teenage fan. What a better world it would be if classical musicians had fans who pursued their musical heroes like I did, instead of trampling each other to catch a glimpse of the latest cookie-cutter pop star. I closed in on him. A few steps away, I spied the thin, white wires of earbuds that extended down into his pocket. No wonder I had escaped his notice. He reached into his opposite pocket, and the lights of his polished silver Mercedes flashed. He opened the door to the back seat and gingerly put his violin inside. His back was to me. I reached out a hand and touched him on the shoulder. He calmly turned to face me. His blue eyes were bright with startling intelligence. I could see them clearly, even in the shadow of the garage. He gently removed his earbuds. Sir, I said, I just wanted to... With one quick movement, he wrapped the earbud cable twice around my neck and pulled firmly. I was shocked. I urged him to stop. No sound or air escaped my strangled throat. Maestro, he said, tightening the wire. I had given up hope of finding you. Betancor sends his regards. I clawed ineffectually at his chest, his face. He looped the earbud cable around his massive hands to tighten the grip. The world was going dim, like sinking into a deep slumber. My knees gave out and crumpled. He descended with me to the floor beside the car, our faces inches apart. The pillars and bulkheads of the garage, a colorless gray, reminded me of old human bones. I was going to die here. My non-name was going to be added to the seven workers who had died building the market in the last century, and the handful of others who had met their end here due to violent crimes since then. I blinked once, twice, each time the blackness was longer. My mind drifted from my body. I witnessed my own murder from a spider's eye view on the garage ceiling. I could hear the water lapping against the pier beyond the light traffic on Alaskan Way and the distant din of revelers at the water. A wave of thought washed over me. I knew the name Betancourt. He was a conductor. Those few with behind-the-scenes knowledge of the classical music world were aware that, for many years, Betancourt had nursed a poisonous rivalry with another conductor who had beaten him to the enviable and prestigious position of music director with one of the world's greatest symphonies. That rival had been me. Then... Like dominoes, this realization unlocked further bits of knowledge. I could see 
the faces of the loved ones in my former life who had attended my performances, my parents, who had died years ago, my beautiful ex-wife, musicians with whom I had worked. There was a man, a violinist, who made ends meet by being a criminal for hire. This past year, after losing my memory, face, and ID, that boating accident, I must have been impossible even for him to find. Time catches up with us all. At last, I knew who I was. It's quite intense ending there to the end of that story. I mean, like, get, get fucking murdered with uh, earbud cable. Earbud cables. Like a piano wire. Yeah, that's what we had in, in the in the days when I wrote that story like two years ago. <laughs> oh, I still use mine because I'm, I'm afraid of the uh, wireless earbuds because I'm a paranoid person and think they're going to pop give out me, give me more cancer oh yeah that too we're exposed to enough cancer well so is this violent i mean this violent how is is this connected to kill Fee at all yeah uh so the the violinist is the same guy that's right okay that's what i was i'm mean, like i'm not tripping out by thinking that right like no. that's the yeah, okay. uh, the the characters from Kilfi make appearances in a couple of my other stories, uh, right. and this, um, you know, the uh, the violinist uh, Wolfgang Steiger. I don't think his name's ever spoken in the first story, but um, his full name. But um, he's just known as Steiger. And in this one, he has no name. He he's just uh, a, a violinist that played in the Seattle Orchestra that also strangles the narrator. Um, <laughs> Well, what's funny is I actually know the first chair violinist in Seattle, in the Seattle Symphony Guild. <laughs> is his name Wolfgang Steiger? No. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> but uh, he, if he, if I see him at the next uh, coffee meetup thing I go to, I'm going to tell him he needs to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He'll get a, get a kick out of that. He's a bit of a superhero in my classical world. Yeah, yeah. It's taken out one bad person in the music industry at a time. Indeed. Well, if this Meister, I mean, was the Meister really that bad of a guy? You know, well, did he deserve to be murdered? We don't really know because he doesn't really remember anything about himself until the very end. Right. Um, but what we do know is that he is very critical of other people um, and he's a loner um, yeah. because no one figured out who he ever was after the accident. So uh, I tried to put those little puzzle pieces together for the reader to kind of conclude that he was a bit of a dick. Like he was just a, a guy who didn't like people. He didn't like the company of people. You know, he probably loved music, but um, that's why he feels so strongly about the recording uh, and the people who attended it being disrespectful because they're not wearing you right. know, suits and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, he's mad at the damn kids. Right, and it's, it's like uh, th- those are details that seems strange when you're first reading it but at the end you're like oh okay that's why he thought that like he's he was one of those players like the he is from that world where he expects to be respected for being on stage um which uh it's something i do like i i love dressing up going to see the performers at benaroya hall but yeah i, I keep noticing that fewer and fewer people are dressed up <laughs> and that's where the story came from well, I mean, I feel like in Washington in general, too, like just Washington and Seattle, it's not a city where people really dress up a whole lot. The hell, the whole West Coast is kind of like that. I mean, LA is even pretty casual. Totally. But, yeah. But I think, um, yeah, I've seen that. You can go out to a, a nice dinner and people are, you know, it could be a, a you know, $50 and up entrees and people are wearing t-shirts and stuff. Yeah. And Eddie Bauer jackets. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Bauer jackets or Pat, Pataguchi. Yeah. 
But I mean, I, I think like when I go out, I like to get nice, especially if it's a nice date night. You know, I want to I want to feel the whole mood. Well, you know, uh, Josh, as you know, like when we met, I was an agent, and um, for that job, I had to dress in a suit every day, yeah. and I fucking hated wearing suits uh, <laughs> after the first couple of months of of working there because it's an extra you know, 15 minutes that you have to spend, like, making sure you're dressed right every day. Um, but uh, uh, nowadays... you're hot in L.A. wearing a suit. Like. Oh, yeah. It's no good in L.A. Um, oh. In Seattle, it's a little better. But now that I don't have to dress up, um, I enjoy wearing suits because I dress up when I want to. And uh, I, you know, I like it. Which is, it's funny you mentioned the whole suit things because... Up until recently, when Victor and I would still go out and meet for drinks, Victor would still wear kind of like the pseudo suit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, Victor, why are we haunted by some people we see at first glance? You know, like what, what, what makes people scary sometimes when you first see them? Like, is it, is it a feeling or? Yeah, it's you know? that, uh, that weird f- feeling of deja vu. Uh, sometimes you see somebody for the first time and, and it's just like, wow, who's that? Who is that person? And and sometimes it turns out to be somebody you've met before. Um, but um, but most often, it's uh, just a sense of familiarity that is ill placed. Like it it shouldn't be there, but it is. Um, and uh, I usually go with the flow on something like that. Like if I meet somebody who I think is familiar, even though they're not. Um, I try to find out about them. Like I try to uh, hang out and get to know them, and maybe it's the universe like putting the two of us together for some reason. You know, back uh, before I was married, uh, I used to that used to be a great excuse to ask somebody on a date. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> I like the way this woman looks. I'm going to ask her out and get to know her better. Um, but uh, now that I am married, uh, it works both ways. You know, it works with uh, you know being able to figure out who who these people are and what they might have in store for my life that I'm not aware of. Or maybe there's something I could do for them, you know, um, like introduce them to a, a speaking event that I, I do here at, in Seattle um, called uh, Noir at the Bar every quarter. Um, that was the last time this happened to me was uh, I just invited uh, this, this dude that I met uh, to that event and he loves it. Like he's going every time now. Yeah, and then he read with you. Yeah. Your last he read at the last uh, the Halloween one. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He and I were up there together. Yeah, no, that's actually um, I promote that to everybody at work. The Nora at the bar thing is really fun. It's really cool to you know first ha- get get to hear an author read their story firsthand, and it's, it's some of the stories there are pretty pretty awesome because they're they're like real gritty kind of noir like almost. Uh, almost kind of like, I don't know if I want to say comic book, but almost like graphic novel-ish. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and there's some folks that kind of double down on the noir a little more than others. And I always have a lot of fun when I go. And then I usually get to hear, you know, that's how I've found out about most of your stories that I like is that you read them there and then yeah, um, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, la- last time I did a reading at Noir at the Bar, um, which is at the alibi room by the way anybody listening to this that's in the seattle area um just to check it out but um the last time i read a story um it was from this book uh but it was in a sort of an edited down version that would fit in my you know little time that i had at the uh on stage um but the um 
usually what I do is I, I write something specifically for Noir at the Bar that's, uh, you know, five to ten minutes long, you know, like very short, almost flash fiction, but maybe a little longer than that, um, that is, you know, more crime-oriented because um, I, you know, write a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, when when I first arrived in the Pacific Northwest to live, um, one of the first writers I talked to was Chuck Palahniuk, you know, the guy who wrote Fight Club and... Uh, lullaby and a bunch of really great books and I really liked his writing um, so I was like dude like uh, does he live up here yeah he lives in Portland no oh, shit yeah um, but uh, you know I I was just like how what should I do like what what are your what's your advice like for a new writer and he's like well two things he goes first of all try to join a peer group and you know get people to read and give feedback to your stuff and also um, try to write in as many genres as you can. Um, and I hadn't even thought about that. I was like, well, I read mostly horror and fantasy, so I'm going to write horror and fantasy. But um, I thought about his words, and I tried writing a crime thing, and then that led me to Noir at the Bar, and uh, that kind of fulfilled the second part of what he said, because I now have a peer group of people there that listen to me and give me feedback. So it's awesome. That's great advice, too, because it's... It's actually, I think it's like the same advice I got when I was asking people, how do I get into the audio business? And they're like, you need to find people that do what you do and hang out with them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You need to, you, uh, actually, the analogy I heard someone, uh, a, a guy I worked for uh, when I was trying to just get more work, he said, where do you go when you play baseball? I was like, a baseball field? And he's like, well, you need to find that for audio. right yeah that's true yeah and some sometimes uh, i found myself once where in los angeles that there i didn't really find any audio groups that were more at my my level i was at i was finding a lot of groups that were like going and listening to like you know ben burt talk or like you know yeah like paying money to go listen to some famous audio you know person speak right at an engagement and i was like well this is cool but, you know, everyone's kind of sitting around and just like, and all like, oh, my God, look yeah. who we're listening to talk. And they and and nothing against them. But those those don't give me a lot of value for career development. They're like more like great stories to hear. Yeah. But I think for career development, you need to be around people that are on the kind of the same level as you that are at the same. You know, they're relatively close at the mark you're at now. Yeah. And it's, know. it's tough. It's tough to find, uh, you know, people at your level. But. Yeah, I think those public speaking engagements, it's its the same in, in the literary world. I mean, uh, they're mostly anecdotes because that's what entertains 100% of the crowd. Um, they don't want to speak to the very few people who might be like close to that guy's level or want to be like, you know, want to be career writers or career audio people. Um, they don't want to alienate the rest of the crowd. So they, they tend to, um, you know, give out rather light and entertaining performances. Right, right, absolutely. What were some of your literary sources for Kingdom by the Sea? That's uh, Edgar Allan Poe, man. The um, I, I consider Edgar Allan Poe the root of the tree of American horror royalty. It's uh, Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, Stephen King. Like, I think everything that we read... Uh, in American horror fiction stems from those three dudes, uh, uh, you know, if you go down enough. Um, but I love Poe. Uh, it's very, um, you know, for anybody that hasn't read him before, 
Uh, usually they have you read one or two of his sh- short stories in school, but um, if you haven't read anything by him, he wrote in the 1800s, and uh, at the time, the type of literature was very difficult to read um, compared to the stripped-down style we have today. Uh, so you really have to concentrate and sort of get into each sentence. Um, but uh, he wrote this story that uh, really impressed me called The Man of the Crowd. And um, I basically just ripped that off um, for this story, except I added the element of the narrator actually having amnesia. Um, so that's why he does what he does. He wants to find out who he is. Um, whereas in Poe's story, The Man of the Crowd, He's just a guy going through a city that sort of locks onto this one other guy and starts sort of in his mind accusing him of all kinds of stuff. And um, what's so great about that story is um, it's on the surface, it's just a crazy guy uh, narrating the story, following another crazy guy all night through town. Um, But uh, psychologically, what it is, is it illustrates a really interesting thing that people do um, called projection, where, uh, you know, there are there are flaws to ourselves that we don't want to face, and we project them onto other, we see them in other people, because that's easy, that's easier for us to, uh, for our minds to um, accept, is that, yeah, this is a flaw that exists. I don't have it, but that guy does. But you totally have it. Like, if you're, if you're overly critical about something in life, that's probably related to a problem you have. Like that's, at least that's the way it works with me. No one wants to hear that. No, I know. Sorry. Yeah, I know. It's, it's awful, but true. But, but if you know the things that are flawed about yourself, um, that's the first step to integrating them. And that's what, uh, like Freud and Jung and, you know, modern psychology, uh, basically says that's the path to being self-actualized is like to know all the parts of yourself, the good and the bad. Absolutely. I mean, that's the only way you can improve, right? If you're always focusing on the good shit, then uh, you're kind of oblivious to ever doing anything wrong. Yeah. There, there's a, uh, you know, Star Trek, the original generation, um, you know, the one with Captain Kirk and Spock and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the, this episode's called, but um, there's an episode where Captain Kirk gets split into two people. Uh, one is like the good guy that like just wants to look out for his crew and like always does the right thing. And the other is sort of the dick Kirk um, that um, is willing to cut through the bullshit and get stuff done. Um, And they find that neither of them are able to command without the other half um, governing them. So that's, that I that that's a very clear um, you know Jungian shadow whatever Freudian id however you want to say it like that that episode whoever wrote that like studied those guys um, because that's exactly what that is and it's like saying hey what if metaphorically our dark side was personified separately from us and we you know it's really good that we have those things because they help us achieve oh yeah there's a that. There's a Rick and Morty episode about it recently. Or not recently, this would have been the last season. But I mean... Great show. You know, that, that, that just shows you, like, even with cartoons, you know, they're citing well-known writing plot, you know, stories and plots that are existing, you know, in history. Like, they're, they're using that vessel to tell a story in modern cartoons, even, that resonate with, you know, young kids see it as just, you know, they see the gratuitous nature of the cartoon, but in there is actually like a pretty deep meaning behind the story of like, you right. know, your darkness keeps the light in check. 
Right. They keep each other in check. Um, it uh, kind of made me think of this story called uh, This is Water, uh, which was by David Foster Wallace. Mm. Uh, have you ever heard of David Foster Wallace? I have not. Um, he he gave a, this really well-known speech to a group of college kids. Um, and he, he was, you know, he had, he had a lot of books published. I guess, you know, I don't know how many books he had published, but sadly he killed himself later which is tragic ending to his life because, um, you know, he kind of couldn't take his own advice that he was giving to people. Yeah. And his famous, this is water speech was about not under, you know, as humans, we're very focused on our own kind of path and we're not like when someone else hinders it, we get really irritated, you know, like, um, and he uses a, a reference, a metaphor of like waiting in line at the grocery store and someone in front of you is taking an extra long time. And he's like, well, you may see this, person that's just driving you nuts and then you start to pick apart everything about them you're like oh look at them look at their the way they fucking dress they're gross you know and you start just you start demeaning them in your head um and maybe not everybody's done this but at some point you've been irritated with people and you're irritated at their actions but you don't really know what's driving their actions like he's saying basically this person could have a family member at home with cancer of course yeah you know they could have just left the hospital after a death in the family and he goes on and on with this and, and he puts it into a way better story than what i'm telling you but the point of that is uh, you we're so quick to judge other humans really fast it's true yeah yeah um, he came right to him he 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 made it easy he yeah. didn't have to go look for him but it makes me wonder when was it going to catch up to him or was that guy just waiting for the moment right did he already know he was at the concert well um i don't think so uh i think that the narrator uh, attends the show and he's been attending shows uh classical shows because he says he's been to several of them and um this was the first time Steiger, who we, we don't we don't know his name in the story, but we know his name from Kilfi. Um, Steiger sees the narrator. And of course, he's you know, Steiger's a brilliant guy and he figures out who who he is. Um, even though, you know, computers and you know his uh, the narrator's attempts to be recognized after the accident failed, um, Steiger can still recognize him. And um, he just had to see him in front of him, in front of his face. So it was just a unfortunate for the narrator set of circumstances or fortunate for the hitman <laughs> that, um, and that's, that's a rule in, in literature. Like um, if, if something um, coincidental <laughs> happens um, to the uh, hero, it can, it can never be lucky. It can never make, make him like escape a death trap or something like that because of some lucky coincidence because that just sounds cheap it just reads cheap yeah. but but you can have an unfortunate coincidence happen because it's like oh now this happened now what's he gonna do and of course in my story um like in a lot of uh, edgar Allan poe stories uh it ends with the character's death you know yeah. there is no happy ending like he figures out who he is which is what he wanted but he doesn't get to live no. so he's dead now yeah he finds himself and he's dead it's funny uh the first movies that come to mind with um you know, a coincidence leading to unfortunate events is James Bond movies kind of exploit it to the fullest. Oh, yeah. He always meets, James Bond always meets, like, some really attractive woman in the beginning, just coincidentally, and she happens to be 
dating or with the bad person that he's trying to find. Right. They happen to be the, you know, Harris of the the evil Doctor Evil. You know, yeah. and it's 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 just funny, and he just meets her while he's water he's he's out on a boat and she just comes water skiing by him is like oh hello and then they're like <laughs> you know it's just right. such a coincidence finding you here and then you know of course he sleeps with her but then she and she's the one who lures him to right dr evil's pal you know imp- uh, place his 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 lair <laughs> yep. Yep. And and you never know. I mean, uh, you know, James Bond is a spy. So and also sometimes the women that work for the arch villains in Bond movies are also spies. Right. So maybe even though it's never really explained to the viewer, um, one of those people is there on purpose. Right. You know, she's there because Bond's there and she wants to uh, trap him or kill him. Yeah. Um, and um, and her bait is herself. Yeah. Um, or the other way around. That's that's kind of the way that that works, um, and certainly with Poe, uh, that's what that's the way he writes it. Oh, you know, another thing I, I wanted to mention about um, uh, Poe's story, the, the story that I, I sort of used as a springboard for this one, um, uh, Man of the Crowd, is that, uh, you know, Poe really um, spearheaded um, detective literature. Um, like the de- detective stories started with him. Uh, I think it's Murders in the Rue Morgue, or there's one before it. That was the first of its type, but oh, now, wow. yeah, that's like a genre now. Um, but uh, this is basically right before the first detective story, so it's basically a detective story, a man of the crowd, um, before w- w- with no crime. So it's basically just a detective following another dude, sizing him up, but there's really no crime that's been committed. So it's, it follows the same format. Um, so you know, if you're a literature nerd like I am. Uh, this is where the genre developed. Like it came out, it sprang out of this. That's a really cool piece of history to know. I did not know that. Yeah. That's really awesome. Well, Victor, it was a pleasure having you here, as usual, reading from your book. Um, Great to be here. And thank you for coming by, and thank you to our listeners for listening, and we will see you all next time. Thank you.